One of the greatest compliments we can give a person is when we call that person a visionary. But we often think that a visionary is reserved for the geniuses, for very few individuals. The truth is, every one of us, you, I, every person, is capable of being a visionary. We obviously have to have courage, but we also have the capacity to be so. So we're going to discuss how to become a visionary, how you can employ certain methods, a formula that when you use that in your life, instead of looking at things with myopic vision, this detail, that detail, you can see the panorama, a bigger vision, wider horizons, and that in turn informs and enriches every detail of our lives. Please join me. How to become a visionary. Hi, this is Simon Jacobson, and we're going to be speaking about how to become a visionary. One of the greatest compliments you can give an individual is calling that person a visionary. But we usually think of that title as being reserved for the geniuses, for the rare few. The people who are able to see a bigger picture who had a sense, a fifth sense, prescience, but not something that is accessible to all of us. Well, my friends, we're going to learn that each of us has a visionary within, but we're not trained to access it, and we're definitely not given the confidence and the courage to actualize it. So let's begin with a story. You may have heard of this city called Chelem. Chelem was this small town in Europe, in Poland, that actually, they say, had very intelligent people. Its citizens were very smart, but their neighbors were resentful. So they created this, uh, the folklore of the fools of Chelem. You have all kinds of jokes at the expense of the Chelem people. This one is about the Chelem farmer. So Chelem was a small town. You can imagine the farm on the town was really small, but it was special to him because he had inherited it from his parents, who in turn inherited it from their parents, going back generations. So it was his baby. Every grain of soil, he knew every grain of soil, every detail, and he cared for it. One day, he has a visitor, a, a cousin, from a big city farmer from the United States. Farms were there thousands of acres in Kansas. And he gives them a royal tour of his Chelem farm. Doesn't take long, obviously. They sit down to dinner, and he says to his cousin, to the Kansas farmer, he says to him, tell me, what do you think about my farm here? So he says, well, it's nice and cute, but it's so tiny. 
The Chelem farmer is taken aback, like insulted. Says, Tiny, how big is your farm in Kansas? Now, how is he going to describe a farm of thousands of acres, which is larger than the entire Chelem, maybe the entire Europe, even. <laughs> definitely than Poland? I'm exaggerating a bit, but you get the idea. How is he going to describe that to him? So he thinks of a point of reference. He says, well, my cousin, it takes me all day to travel with my tractor from one end of the farm to the next. Suddenly the Chelem farmer smiles with compassion and empathy, looks at his cousin from Kansas and says, don't feel bad, cousin, don't feel bad. I once had a tractor like that too. Now, the Chelem farmer was not being malicious, but not being uh, humorous or cynical. He actually could not fathom something so large. So the only way he could understand when he told him that it takes me all day to travel with my tractors, that there must be something wrong with the tractor. He remembered he once also had a shmata jalopy that took all day to crank up to move from here to here. So he understood. That's why it took so, takes all day. If we were to pass out a questionnaire, the question was asked, are you subjective, close-minded, narrow-minded? Most people would not mark that box. Because remember, part of being subjective, it makes you think that you're objective. This Helen Farmer was not being, as I said, he was not being false. He wasn't being disingenuous. He actually did not recognize, he could not fathom, he could not imagine a farm that large. So when you're asked, are you subjective or objective, you have to answer one answer. With one, one introduction, I should say. Based on my perspective, here's what I think. We immediately rush to an answer. Someone to ask you, what does the horizon look like? So, you, so the answer is going to be very different if you're standing in a valley, if you're standing on a plateau, if you're 20 foot feet up on a mountain, or you're at the peak of a Mount Everest. Four different answers, all different vantage points, and they're all answering accurately. From my perspective, we all have our farms. Therefore, we're all subjective. We all have our prejudices, our biases, our preconceived notions. So how then do you find objectivity? By recognizing it, by acknowledging it. When a person says, no, I'm not subjective, I'm objective. That's where our first mistake, truth, is the courage to be able to say, based on the farm that I know, based on the perspective, based on my history, based on my tools and instruments, this is what I can tell you. It's a tremendous lesson, but also a simple lesson. I remember once hearing it in another context, Sir Arthur Eddington was a physicist in the 30s, in the 40s, the 20s, 30s, where quantum mechanics was becoming the all other rage. And its bizarre counterintuitive conclusions were driving people crazy. And up to that point in Newtonian physics, physics was like, like it is with mathematics, things were predictable, more importantly, defined. Here they were introducing concepts of states of probability, in deterministic states, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, things that there was an actual state of being that you could not determine if it's the, the, the context of the uncertainty principle, the velocity, 
and the location of an atom at the same time. And it was the observer that took the indeterministic or state of probability and turned it into a deterministic state. Is light a wave or a particle? And many other such conundrums. Famous Schrodinger's cat, is it alive or not alive? And people were saying, no one ever saw an atom, let alone a subatomic particle. You're coming up with all these bizarre conclusions. So Schrodinger gave, not, uh, so, so um, not Schrodinger, Arthur Eddington, he gave an analogy for this. Interesting analogy of a fisherman who spread out his net over all the seas of the world and began to gather and collect different types of fish. Different species, different colors, different shapes, different sizes. And documenting them. Well, long story short, after many months, years of research, he came to a conclusion. There are no fish in the sea that are shorter than a half inch long. He was about to make this big announcement to the wizards of the world when his little daughter says to him, but daddy, we have an aquarium. And in it are fish, goldfish, that are shorter than a half inch long. So your conclusion is inaccurate. And of course, his daughter, together with the father, the scientist, looked at the net. What net did he use to gather the fish? And the net was made up of ropes that had spaces that were half inch wide and long. So all the fish that were shorter than a half inch long fell back into the water. So all you needed to do is add one line. If you use a net of half-inch spaces, you're never going to catch fish that are shorter than half-inch long. But you don't need a scientist for that. So in other words, the fault was in the instrument. What instrument? Someone will say, I don't believe in love until you empirically prove it. How, what, how do you empirically prove love? There are things you can see with your eyes, with your ears, you can hear with your ears, taste, touch, and smell. Those are sensory tools. Then there are other instruments that magnify. We have telescopes, we have microscopes, we have all kinds of different uh, scans, x-rays, and so on. But love, what instrument are you going to use to measure love? To even determine that it exists? The answer is depending on your instrument. If you're using a telescope or a microscope, you're never going to see love. You're also not going to see ideas in the brain. So it all comes down to, we have each of us our farm. Each of us has our perspective. We may be standing in the valley or on a plateau. And based on that, we come to different conclusions. The first step in becoming a visionary is recognizing that no matter what box you're in, no matter what farm you have, there's more. You may not know what it is right now, but first step. Now, why are some of us so, so, so many of us trapped in our farms? is because it's comfortable. That's what we grew up with. Why challenge the status quo? And many times we're pressured either overtly or subtly to conform. Don't rock the boat. So we come up with, we come to conclusions based on parental attitudes, educational attitudes, social attitudes, the media, all kinds of people and ideas streaming our way, I would say more than streaming, inundating us with their perspectives. Sometimes it's like the blind leading the blind. It's not like their perspective is necessarily the healthiest one. 
But regardless, we come to certain conclusions. Some say by eight years old, we already, most of our ideas have been shaped. Not fully developed, but shaped. Our minds have been shaped, how we're going to think. And especially if we're in a prejudiced environment, I'm not even getting into now destructive prejudice, hatred, racism. Talking about even prejudices that are so-called white, white type of prejudice, meaning they're not overtly damaging, but they're all damaging because they're causing you to have, oh, this is the way it is. Whether it's how we look at people, how we identify, how we stereotype, how we categorize. So it's healthy to categorize. That's what a mind does. This is the second reason we get into our farms, into our boxes. Because we, by natural, we gravitate toward categorization. What class does it belong in? Like, we like order, so we want to have a structure, an outline. Like your cupboard, here's where the spices are. Here's where the cereal is. Here's where I put the fruits, here's where I put the meat. So structure is so much part of our lives. The problem is not the structure, the problem is when you get trapped in the structure. Everything in life requires order. That's order. You come into your house, you don't want everything everywhere. That's called chaos. Or worse than chaos. And it's actually quite unnerving. Even little children fit different objects into the holes that correspond to that object. Triangles into a triangle hole. A circle, a sphere, a rectangle, a square. The problem is when we get trapped there. And that's the only way we see it. Now... In the worst scenario, that can actually become real, outright discrimination, even to the point of hatred and distrust and divisiveness. But we don't even have to go that far. So the first step is recognizing your subjectivity. That itself frees you of the subjectivity to some extent. So when you're standing in a valley and you say, okay, how do I become a visionary? The first thing you need to know even if you don't climb the mountain yet, but there is a mountain. And if you climb it, you may see things that you will not see right now. Now, the person who, can, who will climb and actually go there and wants to gain more knowledge and wants to gain another perspective, they are on their way of seeing the vision of things, not just its manifestation in the specific moment at this time. Let's take history, for example. What I mean by that is people talk about in the words of Dickens, these are the worst of times and the best of times. It's the worst time in history, some people say. Indulgence, selfishness, lack of moral values. Some will say it's the best of times. Look at communications, technology, science, medicine. In every generation, the tendency is to look at things when you're right there. What you see before you is always the most magnified picture. What happened 20 years ago, even in your own lifetime, is doesn't, not as quite prominent as what's happening right now. Because memory fades, context change, especially you go back to a generation before us. So what we've heard was from our parents, from what we read, history books, newspapers, documentation. It's never quite like as you experience it. So, point number, so the point here is, that just contributes to why we are trapped in our subjectivity because we always see what I see right now, the here and now, is the biggest, is, is always going to be most prominent for us. What, what we have to do is step back and say, one second, just like there are bigger farms than I can imagine, 
not everything the way I see it right now. Because I subjectively see, if you see crime or you see something positive, you'll give it a lot of weight, you'll give it a lot of power. Because you're seeing it right now, you're experiencing it. Experience has a lot of power over us. But that doesn't mean people before us didn't experience things. So the wise person again will step back and say, I'm not defined by the here and now. The third point of becoming, in how to become a visionary. Listen to everyone. Learn from everyone. Who is the wise one? The one who learns from every person. Nobody is too inferior. Nobody is too stupid for you to learn from. Even if you think that you're superior to them, which itself is incorrect. The whole concept of superiority and inferiority really is to be thrown out the window because each has, we all have different qualities. But learn from everyone. And sometimes, you know, you learn most from those that disagree with you. And even from your enemy. Because they'll teach you a perspective you'll never come to on your own. Now, initially, our knee-jerk reaction is, why would I want to do that? I don't agree with that person. I despise that person. I despise what he or she stands for. We're not getting now into conclusions whether you have to agree with them, but you can learn from them. And that's how you further broaden your horizons. So this is essentially challenging your status quo, challenging your perspective. This does not mean throw out your perspective out the window. Not saying don't say, okay, this is your farm. Fine, but there are bigger farms and learn about them. And that will inform as you'll be able to say, oh, my farm, I see where it fits into context. It actually is a small farm, but it's my farm. It has qualities that I appreciate. But you don't come to a conclusion, this is the only farm and anything else is, doesn't exist or I can't accept or the problem is with the tractor. or with the, Yes, the problem is the instrument and not the facts. So there are realities out there that we need to look at with different instruments and we need to look at with a broader perspective. And much can be learned from those that disagree with us. There's another statement that says, who is the wise one? Who sees the birthing? Talk about visionary. What means seeing the birthing? It means, and a very practical, simple example, when you see a woman pregnant, you know she is pregnant and will give birth in nine months from now, eight months from now, whenever it will be. The same is in everything. The wise person doesn't just look at the cause, they look at the effect, the long-term effects. They don't just look at the seed, they look at what the seed is going to yield. They see potential in people, not just who you are, but what you can become. Good mentors, good coaches will see you, not just who you are right now, but who, what you can become. So the visionary has that context as well. Being able to look at not just the now, I mentioned before, the past, the present in context of the past, but now there's the present in context of the future. Not just to understand that the past has its reality, but also there's a future. And every act you do right now, every action has a reaction. Every cause has an effect. Every seed will yield and give birth to something, positively and negatively. That allows you also to get out of the trap of what's happening this moment, but rather you're looking at what will happen. There's a beautiful expression I'd like to share with you. It comes from Rabshneir Zaman of Liadi, the founder of Chabad Hasidic movement, the Chabad Hasidus, a visionary of the highest order. 
And he said, when he was once asked about his teachings, he said, the teachings come to teach how small you are and how great you can become. Now, some people know how small they are. They're constantly berating themselves or letting others berate them. And they're knocking themselves and they feel, uh, they feel terrible about themselves. They loathe themselves. Different levels of low self-esteem. There are others that have delusions of grandeur about how great they can become. Both are necessary. The one that's thinking low of themselves are only knowing how small you are. That's important to know, to know where you stand in context of things. But you have to also know how great you can become. The one who only knows how great they, they, can, they can become and don't know where they stand will never get there either. When you teach a student, let's say art or music, even a beginner student, you'll see, will be shown what the masters have accomplished. Now, that student may never reach there. As a matter of fact, it could even be demoralizing. Look what they've done. I'll never get there. As a writer, or at least to some extent a writer, sometimes I see writing by the classics, and it's like, it's like completely demoralizes you. I'm never going to write like that. But that's how you grow. It's like juxtaposing what you are to what you can become. So even though the student is a beginner, you want to show them. Like you want to show a person before you draw your circle, let me show you a perfect circle. Let me show you what, was, what human beings were able to reach, the excellence that they were able to build, whether it was through art or music or other ways. An, a sports athlete. And you look at that, you say, now I have back, a backdrop. So now I can juxtapose what I have right now, where I am, compared to where I could be. So you know you have a destination. You have a larger picture. You always want to have that vision picture because that gives you the context to know what you're growing toward. So now you may wonder, so how could you say that every person can become a visionary? I've, I've described the methods but do we have it in us? And the answer is absolutely yes, by virtue of your soul. If you look only at your body and your faculties, you could say, listen, some people are just naturally born with skills, with talent. Talk about different swimmers, different athletes, their physical bodies were built in a way that just gives them an edge. It's true. Some people are born tall, some people short, some people... With this type of feature, that feature, this personality, that personality. But then there's another aspect to us, and that's called our souls. Your soul really has a bottomless element to it. When I say bottomless, I mean in a positive way. Infatigable, indestructible, and essentially infinite, infinite. Because it comes from a place that is not man-made. And by virtue of that, we have the capacity to not remain stuck in our ant holes, to stuck in our myopic vision, in our farms. But you have to allow your soul to speak. The difference between a soul and a body is compared to a flame and a wick. With a flame that's flickering, that's restless, that's transcendent, licking the air, is your soul always looking up. Your body is like the wick that grounds it. You need both to live in this world. But to use an example, a story, another story, of Tzemach Tzedek, he was actually a grandson of Rav Zaman that I mentioned before. He was once playing with other children. They were playing on a ladder. You know, children climbing up and down and up and down. 
the grandfather of Shnei Zaman was observing and sees that all the children were afraid to climb to the top of the ladder, except his grandson, the little boy, who would later become the great Semach Sadek. He said to him, he called him over afterwards and said, why was it that you were the only one that had the courage to climb up to the top? So he says, Zay, the grandpa, very simple. As the other children were climbing, they kept looking down. So they saw how high they were, and they were afraid to go higher. As I was climbing, I kept looking up. So I saw how low I was, and it motivated me to climb higher. Perspective. Same ladder. Same height, the same lows. When you look down, when you look back at your life, you look at what you've accomplished, but you look at others who've accomplished less than you, it's not usually going to motivate you. You'll say, look how much I've done compared to them. But when you're among people who have accomplished more than you have, you're looking up, and you look at what is capable of being done that hasn't been done yet, that's a motivator. It's interesting. We have eyes in the front of our head, not in the back. Some animals do have, but we have eyes in front to always look ahead. If we're busy looking in the rearview mirror, we usually get trapped by it. Sometimes you need to look to be able to learn from the past, but the focus has to be always going forward, always going up. And that itself motivates you to allow yourself to climb, 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 climb. The mountain of progress, the mountain of success. Yes, there may be setbacks, but you keep climbing. That is what vision is all about. In our personal lives, we each have the soul. That soul has an infinite amount of possibilities. They're all open before you. What's holding you back are your fears, inhibitions, insecurities. But that came from other people or from society around you, as I described. The same ones that gave us our prejudices and our narrow attitudes and our locked positions and our preconceived notions also gave us fear, insecurities, second-guessing yourself. I'm not saying everybody, but very often. We weren't validated. Look at children. A child left on his or her own, constantly exploring. A sense of adventure, a free abandon that never ends. Control. Everything is exciting. Sometimes you have to protect the child from doing something that can be dangerous. But the spirit of that movement... I remember once planning a, uh, an event. And the person I was planning with had his little boy with him. It was a relative. And he was playing in my office while we were planning uh, the schedule. My office was a, a mecca of paper. <laughs> Today we have maybe less paper due to, the, due to computers, due to di- the digital age. And this little kid was, oh, did he make a mess? He threw the papers all over the place. So I said, and as, you know, my, as we were talking, the father says to me, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll clean up afterwards. And I said, no, I'm actually very much appreciative. We should actually make this the topic of our, one of our talks. Because I saw a child, obviously was not looking to make a mess, but the child was alive. So I'm not advocating that's what you should do, but I would never close down that energy. Then, split second, I don't know what happened, I turned on a TV, a monitor. This child, that couldn't stop moving, that couldn't be throwing papers all over the place, couldn't stop. 
suddenly saw the screen, a TV screen, and froze. It was chilling, froze, staring at the screen. It was so chilling that after like 15, 20 seconds, his father says to me, shut it down, shut it off. Because you suddenly saw the kiss of death. Sorry I used such a strong word, but it was that. Because he was hypnotized, seduced by the image. The images were moving, but not the child. And I saw there the stark contrast of who we are. We're born with this energy, with this soul, with this spirit, with a flame burning inside of us. The ability to climb the highest mountains and see the greatest horizons. Get beyond any farm, any subjectivity. But then there are forces in this world that can't freeze us, that can't paralyze us. And I, I shut it down. As soon as I shut it down, the child, it took around 15, 20 seconds till he realized, you know, till the screen realized it's, not, it's off, and then went back. But I said to myself, this was 15, 20 seconds. Multiply that. And then I read that the average child today watches, especially now with mobile phones, six hours a day, seven hours a day, five hours a day. A day. And you start accumulating. What does it do to our spirits when stimulation is coming from others, from outside of ourselves, that we're living vicariously through other characters? People tell me, I can't miss the soap opera. So today, you, know, you can miss it and record it. But it's a complete fictional story. Not taking away from any t- the, the, the virtues of technology, but what's it doing to our spirit? So, of course, it curbs the enthusiasm, it tames the energy, it numbs us, to put it bluntly. So we have to do everything possible to feed that soul, to allow it to speak to us, to allow it to tell us, what do you dream about? And someone will say to you, as I've heard many times, oh, I haven't dreamed in years. No, we have to learn to dream again. And then people say, well, a dream is eh, for children. They're idealistic. They're fantasy. Land. I have a reality to deal with. I have bills to pay. No one's stopping you from doing that. You need a wick. You need to be grounded. But never stop dreaming. Because it's our dreams that allow us to reach places that sometimes our so-called reality traps us in. So when you have that final point to dream, Yes, imagine. Even possibilities that are crazy. They say that Einstein came up with many of his ideas. He was a postal clerk. Precisely because he did not go to the regular structured classes on physics and science. So he was able to think outside of the norm, outside of the box. I read somewhere that a marketing firm in L.A., a very large marketing firm, very successful, when they get a big account, a new account, what they do is they take their team, they get them out of their office, out of their executive offices, in the, wherever it is in L.A., and they rent out an amusement park. Yeah, for children, where there's swings and seesaws and sandboxes. And they have them playing in these places, going back to their own childhood, for hours. And then they have a session, a brainstorm session. Here's the product, here's the new idea, how are we going to market it? And they come up with completely crazy ideas they would never have come up had they were sitting 
in an executive suite in their ties and suits and seeing the same thing they see again and again in this industrial world at which we live. Structured, man-made structures, man-made bricks and mortar. That's what happens. Put someone in an environment that's either not the routine environment or brings them back to a time where they dreamt, where they fantasized, where they imagined, and all kinds of interesting things happen. We don't always have the time for it. <laughs> I read there was a guy, like, an yeah, executive of a big firm. So he went on one of those, they used to call them the Iron John weekends. It was retreats for men trying to regain their masculinity, where they wear skins and they sweat and they grunt and they walk up, they climb mountains and they get all, all worked up. You pay top dollar, you go for this weekend. Anyway, the executive was sitting with his with his team on Monday morning. He's explaining what he did. Well, one of his workers who worked in the construction department who sweated every day said to him, boss, if you want to sweat, you don't have to go to one of these retreats. Just come work with us. And the boss says to him, listen, I don't have the time during the week to do that. I scheduled it. I planned it. And the worker says to him, (laughs) quite bluntly, he says to him, boss, if you're sweating when you want to sweat, that ain't sweating at all. So sometimes we want to do these things, but also on our terms. The key is to do it not on our terms, to get out of our comfort zone. That's, my friends, the key. Get out of the comfort zone and you become a visionary. Now, sometimes it happens, sadly, through tragedy, through loss, through grief, because that pulls you and that drags you out against your will from your comfort zone. We don't need to wait for that. If you really want to access these deeper strengths, we need to do everything we spoke about. To think different by actually recognizing your own subjectivity, learning from everyone around you, even those that disagree, understanding that the tools and instruments we have are limited, challenging yourself, accessing your soul, the spirit, that refuses to conform to the status quo, revisiting reigniting that spirit of youth, of rebellion, of challenging, of dreaming, of imagining, of daring to dare, to dare to dare. That's how you become a visionary. And then it doesn't in any way compromise your life. Because once you're out of that comfort zone, you bring that back into your routines, into your life. And it's enriched, empowered in completely new ways. Thank you. I would love to hear feedback. Try it out. Feedback. How did it go? Try it. Try it for a day. Try it for a week. Try it every day. And as I always say, please share your thoughts, your comments, your suggestions. Meaningfullive.com is our website. Please share it with others if you feel something worth sharing. We can create a ripple butterfly effect. In that, in the process, and that's how we change the world. So each, in our own small way, can be that visionary that changes the world. I'm often asked after a class like this, "What can I do next?" So we're about to begin the 60-day journey, a journey exactly in this context, a journey from love to betrayal and loss to recon- reconciliation building something even greater. 
which includes even the setbacks that we have. So please join us in this journey. You can get a daily email with a meditation and exercise. The book is available, 60 Days, A Spiritual Guide to the High Holidays. Literally a day-by-day journey in the next 60 days, which begins just in a few days from now. Again, Simon Jacobson here for the Meaningful Life Center, MeaningfulLife.com. It's been an honor. Thank you so much. And be blessed and dare to dare. This program is brought to you by the Meaningful Life Center. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at MeaningfulLife.com donate.